Let's turn to the scriptures. We read from Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 3. Just the first three or four verses. This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce-breakers, false accusers, incontinent or without self-control, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. <clears throat> well, our speakers this morning touched on the subject that I'm going to address in a little more detail, the impact of the cultural downgrade on the churches. If the downgrade in Spurgeon's time was a loss of confidence in the authority and inerrancy of Scripture, then when we speak about this cultural or new downgrade, we mean a loss of distinction between the world and the church. The unbeliever should have a cultural shock when they enter the house of God, not because the churches are out of date or old-fashioned, but because we are dealing with spiritual and holy things. The prophet Ezekiel said, her priests have violated my law and have profaned mine holy things. They have put no difference between the holy and profane. Neither have they showed difference between the clean and the unclean. <clears throat> and some appear to have forgotten, as in the day of Ezekiel, that there are two kingdoms here upon earth, the kingdoms of darkness and light, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, Christ's church and the world. And that world, which we mean human institutions in their hostility to God, human society in its antipathy to everything that is to do with our God. The Apostle Paul wrote first uh, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13 of the believers who hath de of God who has delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. And writing to the Romans, he says, Be not conformed to this world. And James writes, The friendship of the world is enmity with God. The believer is in the world, but not of the world. The church on earth is militantly opposed to this godless and, and immoral world in which we live. 
But the devil has lulled many professing Christians, particularly in Western society, into thinking that the world is not so bad. Christians are tolerated, open persecution is almost at present non-existent, Charity, churches are given charity status, we can easily assume that the world, fallen, sinful society in which we are placed is not that bad. Some Christians think that culture is redeemable and many have unconsciously imbibed that, that sinful culture into their thinking and so have churches. Well, for whatever reason, it's clear that Western sinful culture has now seeped into the thinking and the attitudes and the worship of many churches in our society. And Tim uh, Timothy is reminded here that in the last days, perilous times shall come. Perilous not simply because of the gross sins which will be openly and brazenly practiced, but perilous because in such times the church is often caught napping and its distinctions from the world eroded. We may still be very different from the world, but whenever society begins to crumble as our society has, there is always that peril that the church will be affected. Just as the moon, as it uh, uh, circles the earth, it draws the oceans and creates the tides. So a society becomes degraded and immoral it will draw and influence to a certain extent the Lord's people if we are not watchful and prayerful and earnest in our endeavor uh, to contend for those things which are right. How then has culture affected the church in the days in which we live? I want to suggest to you this afternoon five aspects to the thinking and attitude of the world or culture around us that appears to have crept into the thinking and the behavior of many within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first is that we live in a self-serving society. Now, some of what I will say this afternoon has been touched on by the earlier speakers, and this is perhaps something we need to be acutely aware of. We are in a me-centered culture. Be good to yourself is one of those phrases that gets banded about. I need some me time, people will say. And they will approach many aspects of life and say, well, what's in it for me? It's all about number one. It's all about how I can enjoy myself and benefit. And that thinking so easily 
can move into the thinking of the Lord's people. Now, self-centeredness is nothing new. It's part of fallen nature. It's always been evident in human society. But in times such as Paul refers to here, men shall be lovers of their own selves, more than normal. And that is so especially pervasive today. I'm sure you will all agree. A love of ease, of self-pampering, lovers of pleasures, more than lovers of God, the apostle goes on to say. Leisure, an end rather than a means to enable us uh, to continue in the duties and responsibilities of life. Society is increasingly an entertainment culture where entertainment is the be-all and end-all with hundreds of TV stations, with a saturation of entertainments of all natures. And this dangerous spirit of self-serving imperils the Lord's people. We live in such a world. The culture of self-serving is all around us. But it's dangerous for the Lord's people. Firstly, and this was touched on by uh, Brother Darren Caderpin, it breeds a false expectation of life. I have rights. I have expectations. This ought not to happen to me. I ought to be treated better and more fairly. And that can breed bitterness and resentment. Probably we've all met Christians, professing Christians at least, who've gone through difficult times and they've deserved our prayerful support. But then they've become overwhelmed with self-pity and they complain at God instead of complaining to God and seeking his help and grace. It shouldn't happen. It's not fair. And that's in part a reaction to the false expectations that our culture has. Everyone should have a good time. Trouble should be banished. But that's not reality, is it? The self-serving culture fosters a lust for entertainment-style worship. Stephen Charnock, the Puritan, said this, when we believe that we should be satisfied rather than God glorified in our worship, then we put God below ourselves as though he had been made for us rather than that we had been made for him. And that thinking seems to shape many people's expectations when they come to the house of God. Well, I hope that it's going to be enjoyable. I hope I'm going to sing tunes that I like, and so on. But surely we come to the house of God to feed upon his word, to pay our vows, to renew our allegiances, to affirm his truth, to learn his ways, to receive exhortation, 
to pour out our hearts before him in thanksgiving and supplication. It's not a case primarily of enjoyment and satisfaction. If we know the Lord and we are spiritually minded, then so often we will come away from the Lord's house saying it has been good to be there. But we do not start from the point of view of, well, it must be user-friendly or it must be designed to make me entertained. But we must move on. The self-serving spirit stifles Christian service. People say things, well, I've got too much to do to be involved in Sunday school or to help with, with the visitation or trap ministry. I need some me time. My family must come first. The sacrificial mindset has been undermined in our society and that can easily creep into the priorities that we have as believers amongst the people of God. The Apostle Paul sets the standard. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, he says this, Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sakes, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul's burden was not to please himself, but to spend and be spent in order that souls should hear the gospel and come to know the joy of salvation. You think of William Carey as a young believer, just beginning to preach as a shoemaker. He took all those old pieces or discarded pieces of leather and he stitched together a globe. And then he wrote on the various countries depicted on this globe how many there were who were heathens, who had never heard the gospel or read the word of God. And he was filled with a great burden that souls should hear the truths which he had come to love. And he was willing, as he said to the society of Baptist ministers who were standing behind him, I will go down into the well if you will hold the rope. That was his mindset. That was his thinking. But in our self-serving society, we say, well, if I've got anything left at the end of me time, then I'll give it to the Lord. But that's not the spirit that we are commended to in the scriptures. The second aspect of church life which has been seriously impacted by our culture is Sabbath day keeping. We read here in 2 Timothy, men shall be lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. And it's that love of pleasure, perhaps more than anything else, that has swallowed up the Lord's day or the day of rest in our society. It's sport, entertainment, that has taken over that day of rest. The Puritan teaching on the Lord's Day was very distinct. Thomas Watson, among others, described it as the queen of days, the cream of time. 
And in their preaching, the Puritans would often challenge the lost for their Sabbath-breaking. So much was the day of rest in the consciousness, not just of the churches, but society, that you could challenge people and say, why do you not keep this day as the Ten Commandments require? Why do you not honour the Lord and seek him? It would be very difficult in some ways to pinpoint that sin out in our society because the day is so completely obliterated from the thinking of vast numbers of people. The old confessions, the Baptist confession I'm quoting here, but the Westminster, the Savoy, they all say something very similar concerning the Sabbath day, that on this day we observe a holy rest all day from our works, our words and thoughts about our worldly employment and recreations. We are taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties, and necessi of, uh, the duties of necessity and mercy. And there's no doubt that this Puritan affirmation of the Sabbath day shaped the churches and brought much blessing through the following centuries. It was honoured and cherished during the times of the Great Awakening and the early missionary outreaches from the UK and from America. This day was cherished and it was loved. Jonathan Edwards wrote this, it is sufficiently clear that it is the mind of God that one day of the week should be devoted to rest and to religious exercises throughout all ages and nations, not only among the ancient Israelites till Christ came, but even in these gospel times and among all nations professing Christianity. And that legacy continued, as Pastor Thackway said, up until the mid-20th century. Even in the 1980s, when I was a, a young adult, sport on Sundays was limited. The Wimbledon final was on a Saturday. The cup final was on a Saturday. But now the day is gone in our society. It's a day for sport, for leisure, for family, but not for the Lord. And an alarming decline has taken place in Sabbath observance amongst the churches. In some, it seems it's rarely affirmed. In others, there's a half-hearted observance. Well, it is the day for worship. But friends, the TV should be off. The internet should be avoided unless we are downloading sermons or things like that. And we need increasingly to beware the encroachment of our Sabbath-ignoring culture on our phones, with social media, with instant news feeds and notifications. These things can distract our minds and take us away from the business of the day, which is to focus upon the Lord 
and his worship and his ways and his word and to minister to souls and needy ones as we have opportunity. The church is severely impacted when the day of rest is eroded. Firstly, in its spirituality, but also in the readiness of members to serve. Let me read to you from Isaiah 58 and verse 13, where the Lord says this, If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, and what he means by that is trampling on it, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, honourable, and shalt honour him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth, and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Not doing thine own ways, finding thine own pleasure, speaking thine own words. These are high standards. If we discipline ourselves to lay aside as far as we can our secular lives in order to devote ourselves to the Lord, then we have here a promise of spiritual prosperity. It's vital, but our culture is so far removed from the early consciousness of keeping a day special that it's beginning to undermine the convictions of the Lord's people. Thirdly, culture is affecting the church on account of an erosion of respect for authority. Here, in these words we read from 2 Timothy, we read of those who are disobedient to parents, others who are blasphemous, and that word doesn't always mean speaking profanities against the Lord. It can mean those who are slanderers or revilers of any authority, boasters, people full of themselves, not wanting to acknowledge those who have been set over them, either in secular life or increasingly in the house of God. And we find this especially in Western society, less so, I believe, in Africa and in many other parts of the world, but Western society seems to be blighted by a lack of respect for authority, and that really came to a fore in times, the, the COVID season. But in so many ways, people have lost their respect for parents, for officials, for teachers, for the older person. And that's alien to the way our forebears used to live and think. Scripture teaches that we should respect our parents and alongside parents there are all those who have a role as a father figure or seniority over us in society 
and church. In Leviticus 19 and verse 32, we read, Thou shalt rise up before the hoary head, and honour the face of the old man, and fear thy God. I am the Lord. The Apostle Paul in Acts 23 said, It is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. But increasingly, perhaps strengthened and encouraged by the media, people are very swift to be critical of politicians. Sometimes they deserve it, you will say, but of others in authority. But that natural deference and respect has gone increasingly at an early age. And that spirit has found its way into the church so often. And it's a great sadness. It's a great uh, heartfelt burden to many pastors. Now, of course, there is a need for men who command the respect of people because of their dignity and their holy walk. And of course, there are some who deserve to be challenged, men who are hypocritical or inconsistent. Nevertheless, in the New Testament, there is a great emphasis upon respect for authority amongst the people of God. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. First Timothy chapter Thessalonians, sorry, chapter 5 and verse 12. We beseech you, brethren, to know them which labour among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Hebrews 13 and verse 17. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit. And submit there means yield. Make yourselves weak. Submit yourselves. Is it not true that every pastor here, I would imagine, has experienced those who quite quickly, after coming into membership, have begun to challenge them? Pastor, why do you do this? Why don't you do that? I think you're wrong to do it this way and that way. Is that the spirit that is commended in the New Testament? Often there is a failure to defer to experience. Men who've perhaps been in the ministry for many years, godly men, and yet a young person comes into membership and then within weeks imagines that they can start challenging and influencing and criticizing. It's not the spirit of Christ or the New Testament. It's come from culture and culture's readiness to complain and find fault with everything at every opportunity. A fourth characteristic of our culture is that we have become a casual society a casual society. It's really connected to what I've just said about respect for authority. What does the word casual mean? It means relaxed and unconcerned. 
the opposite of being formal and serious. And we see a casual society on every level. Now, of course, there are times when we relax and being casual and in casual dress is not necessarily wrong. But I hope you'll appreciate what I'm trying to pinpoint here. A casual attitude to sin. The book of Proverbs says fools make a mock at sin. A flippant attitude to death. Funerals where everyone's laughing, laughing and joking. When actually someone has just passed from time into eternity. It ought not to be casual. Flippant and profane towards holy things. No reverence for God. No sense of his lofty nature. Unwilling to accept his supreme authority and the absolute truth which flows from him. Everything in life increasingly treated in a casual way. And this spirit is a real threat to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We hear of cafe-style services. So many that have a matey approach to the Lord in prayer, with no reverence, with no sense that they are coming into the presence of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the true and glorious Creator. Brother Thackway quoted Psalm 89, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints. Reverence is so formative to the whole of our character. It helps us when we're dealing with, the, with life's troubles. It helps us in all the decisions of guidance. When reverence is gone, the self-serving spirit takes over and before long, our life is a, a faint resemblance of what it ought to be if we are those that are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Casual worship is so damaging. We lose sight of the majesty of God. We forget the great gulf that exists between us as sinful creatures and our God in all his purity and glory. We live in a bite-sized society. Apparently, in the last 20 years, the average concentration span or attention span of a person has almost halved from eight seconds to four seconds. Why is that? It's to do with the culture in which we live. Sound bites, everything spoon-fed to us, social media, we cannot concentrate for long. The Puritans used to say, prayer is sweaty work. Worship does require effort, concentration, attention. But this is alien to our culture. And we need to be watchful that that spirit and that flaw doesn't creep into our thinking. There's little appetite for teaching, for diligent study of the Word of God. These things are being undermined by the cultural ills 
that are being mentioned today. But lastly, this, the fifth point I'll make, and I think my time is just about gone, the communication culture. In one sense, communication is a wonderful tool. This conference is going out online. There are almost as many tuned in online as are here in person. And that's a very great boon. But we need to remember that Babel was the epitome of worldliness. And the Lord confused their tongues in order to disperse man's rebellion against God. And when godless society increases its ability to communicate one with another, it becomes a catalyst for further rebellion and vice. Evil communications corrupt good manners. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33. And it is a perilous society that can communicate and aid and abet error and godlessness and rebellion against the word of God. It's perilous to the truth and it's perilous to the church. Why is that? Well, the internet is a tool for good, but it's a means to proliferate error as well. Pastors today face congregations that surf the web and imbibe culturally compromised teaching. Those that claim to be Christians, but at the same time have compromised with all the evil of present culture, promote their own philosophy and their own ideas. Pastors, some of whom seem to be experts on Hollywood movies, often parade their, their teaching to great effect online. We need to be so vigilant, so watchful, because those increased opportunities for communication can do us good, but they can also be a great means of harm. We can go on the internet, uh, we can very quickly be led astray, and all sorts of false teaching and foolish ideas imported and spread like wildfire amongst the people of God. I wanted to mention worship in a little more detail, but these five things have all in some way contributed to the worship downgrade. The failure to keep the Sabbath, the self-serving spirit, the lack of respect for the authority of God's word, the casual society, communication with false teaching, all these things have come almost together like a tsunami and it has swept the traditional worship of the churches away. Biblical worship has been removed from so many places where the name of Christ used to be preached faithfully. 
We need to be on our guard, friends, against these things. Well, may the Lord bless this day and those that will speak um, in the next few minutes. I think we have a five-minute break and then Pastor Kay will address us on culture and education.